Ron Dirks fan, what's going on? It's your host, Ron Rapitalo, and got my guest, Ian Buchanan, who, in his words, and you can see hip-hop all over this podcast episode, calls himself the Jay-Z of leadership coaching. And so, I had to tell y'all, he's got something. And Ian's brilliance from starting off in St. Louis and keeping it to his community and taking the concepts he learned from being a teacher to an administrator of a school to being in central office and all the different things he learned. He's got a platform. He's got a way of leading that I think is applicable not only to black male leaders, but to all leaders in schools and beyond. So check out this episode. Shout out to leveragepublishinggroup.com. We are a company that ghostwrites, edits, and publishes first-time authors. Peace. Rondering's Universe, I am back with my friend and fellow K-12 education co-conspirator, ally, and powerhouse, Ian Buchanan is on the mic. Ian, how you doing, brother? What one? What one? What one? How you doing? Being a little bit of Brooklyn back in the mix, man. My beautiful, beautiful Caribbean hey, people. I love it. Yes, yes, yes. Hey, man, things are going well. It's a wonderful day. I'm feeling excited to have this conversation. I do believe in this idea of iron sharpens iron. And so getting a chance to sharpen iron with a brother like yourself. Hey, man, it's just a good day. I couldn't ask for more. Thank you, Ian. I'm trying to remember exact because I know you didn't do Teacher America, but I feel we met in like Teacher America school leader circles because we overlapped. Yeah. Do you remember that? I should check. You know my, what? Yeah. I say all the time, I say I wasn't in TFA, but I can up speak like I was. No, that's a joke. But <laughs> so, man, I work there and I, you know, pretend like I'm a core member, but I'm not. Exactly. So <laughs> so maybe that's it. So yeah, I did work for TFA for a couple of years. I did strategic work uh, in the St. Louis region. And that's then right. the other piece mm. was I had a chance to work with your a better half. Fourth and work that we did with leading educators, building out. She built out the ELA equity framework, and oh, I built out the mathematics beautiful. framework. Yes, that's literally my better half. Whose <laughs> 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 podcast episode is coming in a couple of weeks? I've recorded her a little bit, you know, some some weeks ago. So now just that's trying to bring up. all the dope people in my life on the podcast. Oh man, it's it's wonderful, man. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, extremely impressed by her brilliance, yeah. her commitment to the work. Mm-hmm. I love people who have a technical expertise. I feel like it's good to be good, but it's great to be great. You know? Amen. Amen. Yeah. yeah. So brother, let's get right into it. So why don't you describe for us your story? Yeah, man. So, you know, they have this, this notion of what they call the uh, danger of a single narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And so just thinking about how some of these uh, ways of being or, or how we grow up or how we uh, kind of traverse through this world are very problematic to some. And so I'm born in a very impoverished community called East St. Louis, Illinois, not St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, in about, I guess, right in the early 90s, there was a scholar by the name of Jonathan Kozal who mm. wrote a book called Savage Inequality. I remember that book. Yep. Absolutely. And in the first chapter, he says, East St. Louis will be just like it is for many years to come. 
a scar of sorts, an ugly metaphor of chemical effusions and filth, a place for black folks to live and die within, a place for white folks to pass when they're on their way to St. Louis. And so that is the narrative that he painted about my community. But my community was much more than that. When we talk about Mm. community cultural capital, when we talk about this aspirational capital that these black segregated communities create, that was how I was raised. And so I was born to an 18-year-old single mom Mm. who probably was not sure about what was going to happen to her black son. But I was able to take all of the community wealth that was embedded in me and do something with my life, man. So mm. uh, so I, I call myself a blurred, a black nerd. And I've been a black nerd for a long time. But I got a full engineering scholarship to the University of Missouri. Nice. And us K-12 educators, we K-12 educators are familiar with the opportunity myth. And so I was the opportunity myth before the opportunity myth. Yes. And that is this notion that We feel well-equipped to take on the academic rigors of secondary education. We have these high academic accolades, but then we get a body blow as soon as we step into these spaces. And so that was my experience. I was totally underprepared for the rigors of engineering. So then you get that imposter syndrome. You get all of those other things that start to kick in. But what happened for me, though, Ryan, was uh, at that time, I really was, I considered myself to be a super, super leftist revolutionary. Mm. And I read a book called Black Awakening in Capitalist America. And what it talked about was this notion that the United States in the late 60s and early 70s said, hey, we got to stop these black people from blowing up and burning up all of these major cities in the United States. We got to find a way to transition or transfer this black power into green power. And so then you have Mm. all of these opportunities opening up for black and brown people, these scholarships and these internships and all of this affirmative action. And so I guess I was, when I read that, I was like, hold on for a second. If I'm an engineer, that means I'm a pawn in the game. That means I'm just a tool for this oppressive society. So you know what? I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to become a teacher. So I read Mm. that book. I had the chance to do an internship and I worked with four black boys. Hey man, changed my life. It changed my life. So I graduated from the School of Engineering in May, started graduate school in June in education, was a teacher for about five years, was a school okay. leader for 11, Wow. was a systems leader, assistant superintendent for five years. Mm. And I've been a full-time entrepreneur. I've been a full-time entrepreneur for, uh, for two years. And, and in the systems work, I was a chief academic officer because I know that that is one place that you rarely see black and brown men, especially in traditional public schools. And so I wanted to take that role to be the academic head of a district versus, you know, student services or HR, nothing wrong with those roles at all. But I wanted to be responsible for what my students learn. And so that's pretty much my story, man. Mm. Let me rewind to one or two things you said in the beginning of your story, Ian. I want to go back to Ian and the way you describe yourself, you said you were blurred, which is a term I've heard yeah. amongst many of my, my, my brilliant black friends. Describe yeah. the things you were into in your younger age that led you to define yourself as a blurred. What were you into back then? So so first and foremost, I am hip hop. Ah. And so. Amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah, I am hip hop. And so when I think about a blurred, that is someone who has, for me, Yeah, I was I graduated from high school, you know, at the top of my academic class. But I also consider myself to be one of those cool dudes, too. Ah, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was very 
and and I, you know, I definitely enjoyed the ladies and those kinds of things. So, so you know, I, I consider myself to be a cool nerd, sort of a cooler version of Barack Obama, you know. And so, uh, I I definitely tried to achieve because that was what was tattooed in my skin is achievement. But I also was a very social person, very active person, and totally immersed in hip hop culture. What were you listening to when you were growing up? That uh, was the foundation of your love of hip hop and being hip hop. Yeah, I would have to say I would have to say a combination of probably KRS One and BDP. Yes. Yeah, I would say Eric B and Rakim. Okay. But then on the other side, I would also have to say you know the NWAs of the world. So I think it was a combination of both. But I'm a big fan of lyricism, and so I really do like like lyricists, and I like conscious hip hop. But I but I listen to all kind of hip hop. But I am a fan of there's a term called NOMO, the transformational power of the spoken word. It's a key Swahili term. And so I understand that mm. hip hop, not hip hop culture, but rap music, because we know there are five elements to hip hop. That's right. But rap music is one of the most profound evidences of NOMO, the transformational power of the spoken word. And so I was captured by the power of the spoken word. Mm. And I, I know this is not a hip hop podcast. I'm about to go down yeah. a rabbit hole of asking you who your top five favorite rappers of all time. But I'm like, wait, I'm going to pause on that. For, I don't yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> I, I will on a later podcast, but yeah. I want to go into then you moving from engineer to teaching. You talked about teaching four black boys. That was part of that transfer. So talk a little bit about that. Like, you were in college and figuring this all out and then moved it like, talk yeah. to us about that story, that transformation. Absolutely. So I was in my super senior year. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had a, I had an opportunity to get a couple extra credits. Okay. And so my fraternity partnered with the local school district. And as part of that partnership, our task was to tutor kids for 20, 20 hours a week. And so there were just these four boys that I had a chance to tutor. And I realized that teaching is my superpower. It is my mm. gift and it is my way to impact the world. And so I was like, you know what? And I come from a family of educators as well. See, I was about to ask. Yeah. It, it all makes yeah. it. There's something about your energy. I would have guessed you come from a family of educators, Ian. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My uncle was the principal at my high school for 25 years or so. Damn. Wow. Yeah, my aunt was a, a teacher in, in my high school. Several of my women relatives are educators. Yeah. And so it was, it was it was sort of in my blood. And I'm a big brother by 11 years. And so this kind of teaching, nurturing thing was really part of my, my DNA. Mm. Talk to us about that educational journey. So you talked about teacher, principal, central office leader, not entrepreneur. Walk us through those steps and like wh what that journey has been for you. Yeah. So so to be honest, I thought I was going to be a teacher forever. I didn't really have a desire to be a school leader. Basically, what happened at, at my high school, the high school where I taught, I wanted to teach the most challenged kids in our building, whether it was the upper level classes or the, you know, sort of the pre-algebras of the world. And I can just remember teaching a geometry class or maybe a trade class. And a kid said, Mr. B, I got a question. Am I ever going to use this again? I was teaching like the Pythagorean theorem or the quadratic formula or something. And I was like, son, you know what? Nope. I just was so honest. And as soon as I said, nope, I said, you know, why am I spending my time in this space? I need to be doing something different that's going to have a greater impact. 
teaching kids geometry and algebra too is great because it does set the foundation for post-secondary success, but this is not my mission. And so as soon as I said that, hmm. I decided to go to grad school for, for uh, administration. Got it. Yep. And so then I did that and I was a, a middle school AP for a few years, elementary principal. Okay. Uh, for a number of years, and also a middle school principal for and a number of years. you stayed in the St. Louis area, the East St. Louis area, doing this work, right? Yeah, so I've yeah. always been an educator on the St. Louis, Missouri side. Okay. So I've always been on, on the Missouri side. But yes, I've done done that work. As a central office person, though, I had a chance to go to Memphis and work for the Achievement School District, which is one of those portfolio school models similar to New Orleans. Yeah. And I was able to work under Chris Barbic uh, and do some work there. So, yeah. There it goes. What was it like working ASD in those early years? Because, you know, it's certainly in a lot of ed reform circles looked at as, you know, one of the like earlier models of like what you can do to transform schools. It was such a complex and multi-layered experience. Mm. And so I can remember. So my job was to go to the schools and say, hey, in the last six years, you've had 13 kids that can read on grade level. Jesus. So so what we're going to do is we're going to take your school. We're going to change your school colors. We're going to totally redesign it. And as a matter of fact, we may hire your teachers, but we probably won't. They got an interview. We may or may. And we're going to bring this charter organization in who has no history of a track record of success in Memphis, but we're going to bring this school anyway. And that was my job to say this to audiences of disaffected people. My first presentation, even if you go online and look it up, you can see all of these kids protesting me, like all of these protesting signs. I got booed eight times the first presentation that I did. And so it made me really challenge what does it mean to be, to do work with the people and not to the people. And it also really made me, it troubled this idea of Mm. charter versus traditional public, white run charters versus people of color run charters. Yeah, see. Legitimate and authentic parent engagement towards what end? Yeah. And it also made me understand the power in black and brown leaders creating their own because there were some outstanding charter schools founded in Memphis, Freedom Prep Academy, Amen. for example. Yeah. Shout out to our girl Roblin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Roblin. That's right. And so it really gave me a different level of hope. And I started to see the charter space as a place that we could have some autonomy and do some things that we know work for our kids. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a very complex experience. And But what was so crazy is, so I worked for the Achievement School District for about a year, and I worked under Chris Barbic, who is this powerhouse in, in the air reform space. Yep. And then I was like, Chris, I'm not really feeling this. And he said, okay, cool. Well, let's go out and have some drinks. Let's talk. I want to introduce you to my wife. So he introduced me to Natasha Kamrani, Natasha was in the process of building a parent organization called the Memphis Lift. And so I transitioned from working with. Oh, man. And look at that. Okay, I know. And so then part of my job was to develop the quote unquote curriculum for the Memphis Lift training. And so the Sarah Carpenters of the world. I was there the day that Memphis Lift started. I played a crucial role in the launching of the Memphis Lift. So it was a real complex experience. Man, what did that Ian learn back then from ASD that you took into your entrepreneur world? That it really enforced the notion that 
the people closest to the work have to have the elevated voices. And we can teach those, we can teach us, because when I say us, I am of that. And so I just make a little bit of money now. But Mm. we can teach the most disaffected members of our community how to empower themselves. We can teach them all of the communication strategies, all of those things, how to build coalitions, how to build relationships, how to understand school data, how to challenge schools. We can teach them all of that and still let them go to do their thing uh, versus being like these puppet masters. And it also taught me the importance of finding that Sarah Carpenter in every city. Mm. Where is that Sarah Carpenter? Who is this person that can elevate the voice, that has a street cred, that has the authenticity, that's willing to challenge anybody that's willing to be his or her authentic self? And so I think that's one thing. The other thing that I learned is really sometimes the way that we engage parents felt a little bit manipulative to me. Oh, speak on it. Come on. Yeah. So I think sometimes when we provide people who have not had specific experiences with those experiences, restaurants you've never been to, all you can eat and drink, all of these kinds of things that I sometimes wonder if it's a way to bamboozle us. Hmm. Yeah. And, and again, I'm still negotiating my thoughts around that now because we really cultivated and poured into these parent leaders. I just wonder sometimes if food and drink can be a way to manipulate people. Mm. Yeah, I'll just leave it there. I'll leave it there. Yeah. Mm. Yep. We might have to come back to that once we let that little like, <laughs> marinate for like a little, for, for a couple yeah. minutes. So talk yeah. to you about what you're doing as an entrepreneur. Talk to us about your business, the impact you're having, how that work is going. Yeah, man. So, um, so, yeah, so I, I lead an organization called NIA Education Group, which is a, you know, purpose driven group that is designed to help great leaders become their greatest leadership selves. And I really do that in a couple different ways. First and foremost, I am a teacher. And so I do partner with organizations and universities to teach courses. But the primary work is really around cultivating systems leaders, school principals, nonprofit leaders. And so I'm a a certified and trained executive coach. So I work with around 30 black and brown leaders across the country, including uh, working with organizations like Surge Institute, the Black Principals Network, and those kinds of organizations. So I do a lot of leadership coaching. uh, Also with uh, the Cambiar Fellowship that's sort of connected to Teach for America. So that's one piece. Mm. The other piece is instructional coaching. So I get into about 80 classrooms a year working with teachers around culturally responsive teaching frameworks, specifically Dr. Shiraki's framework. And then I do specific leadership development trainings, whether we're talking about the intra slash interpersonal leadership, whether we're talking about strategy and organization, or whether we're talking about instructional leadership. And then the final piece that I do is I do a little bit of HR work, sort of a talent management kind of thing. If a district is looking for an African-American female who has K-12 experience and has measurable results. I try to go source those people for school districts. Uh, Sometimes I do a little bit of interview screening things. I just try to uh, do enough to change the world. Well, tell us a little bit, Ian, how that work is going. What's some of that work? Because that's that's a heck of a lot of work to be doing. Are you, do you have a team? What's the, what are some of the like, you know, yeah. big strands you're really excited about right now or projects you can talk about that are going on? 
Yeah, man. So being an entrepreneur has been a challenge. You know, walking mm-hmm. away, like I tell people all the time, I say, I have to kill for my meat now. I don't get vacation days. I don't get PTO days. I don't get any of that. And so I have to kill for my own meat. And so just this thing that being an entrepreneur is really a 25-hour-a-day job is something that I really have to get get used to. But right now, I do have a very small team. But part of the work that I'm doing is really trying to be very honest, Ron. I'm trying to narrow my focus Mm. because I heard uh, a comedian talk about this concept called broke PTSD. And so the notion is that you take on so many projects because you're nervous that you won't make enough money. Welcome to the world that I'm in right now, Ian, just dipping back into entrepreneurship. Exactly. So you feel me. You feel me. And so part of it is like figuring out a couple things. Where can I make the greatest impact? What is it that I really love? What is it that I'm really good at? And so using that criteria to narrow down some of the focus of the work that I'm doing. But the biggest chunk of work that I do right now is really in the executive leadership coaching space, the instructional coaching space, and then also doing workshops. So for example, I have a book out called King. It's a four-part leadership framework for Black men. Mm. And as part of that book, I have a a four-part framework. And so I lead, I facilitate what I call the King Leadership Masterclass. And it really is designed to help leaders operationalize the four principles that are embedded in the book. So that's a big chunk of my work as well. Mm. Let's elevate your 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 leadership framework in King. Talk to us mm-hmm. a little bit more about that, the impact that it's had and why you decided to create it. Yep. So as you know, many educators, especially at the elementary level, love to use those acronyms. And so King. We do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so King. K, know the king within. So this importance of self-awareness, social, emotional intelligence. Who am I? What are my strengths? What are my superpowers? What are my saboteurs? What are my areas of growth? Mm. And so that's the first piece. And so I outline ways that we can better know the king within or queen within because this is a, it's not specific to a gender. Then I is inspire others for collective impact. So what are the ways we can coach, motivate, mentor, inspire others for the collective good, not for the individual good, but for the collective good. I like to say, how do we collaborate in a way that we slash the tires of white supremacy? That's the goal. N is navigate to the North. So how do we make sure that our work is aligned to our core values, our belief system, and our mission? And then G is gravitate to the great. How do we build coalitions of the willing that will challenge, inspire, motivate us and vice versa. So how do we create this space of iron sharpening iron? And so again, Mm. in in my four series masterclass, I lay out some very practical strategies for folks to personalize the work and uh, become the king that they were destined to be. Yeah. I'm going to bring a fellow brother who I had the privilege of having on Ronderings, who I'm sure you know, Keenan Bishop. Yeah, man. Yep. And- You know, what I hear from what you've done with the King Framework, like I started hearing you describe, I was like, oh, it's self-awareness, it's building the interpersonal, it's building the systems, and it's building these coalitions. So it's like this institutional work, right? And I can't help but hear Keenan in my head said, Ron, everybody samples. It's just recognize like where you like are, you know, getting your sampling from. So when you develop this framework, who 
influenced you around these notion around this framework? Like who are, who are Ian's like inspirations for what you created? Yeah, I think so. I say Gorman or Goldman, the guy who was really you know the oh, Daniel the, Goldman, uh, kinda, yes, Goldman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Emotional so, intelligence, so, yes, yeah. I'm talking about emotional intelligence, but I would also have to say just the brilliance of King in the way that he was able to build coalitions, especially as a kind of an insider outsider, and and as a super young person, so I was always inspired by him. But most importantly, Bayard Rustin. Because hmm. at one point, Bayer Rustin was called the most brilliant strategist in the entire world. Hmm. However, most of us have no clue who he was. So, so I think Bayer Rustin is one. And then also the guy, James Avant, the black godfather. I, yeah. Yep. Amen to Clarence Avant. That's one of my heroes too. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So people who can change systems and influence without necessarily being in front is really how I try to do my work. And so this King was really, Mm. and to be very honest, the other part is uh, one of the things that inspired me, man, was really simple. Nas is one mic. And so I was like, hey, man, seriously, if I got one mic. Come back to hip hop here. Come on now. It's it's inevitable. Yep. And and I said to myself, and really how the book came about was I walked into a space and the, the guy that used to be the youngest in the building was now the oldest in a in a space of school leaders, mm. you know. So I was the old head, and so that song "One Mic" came in my head. Like, okay, so if I got one mic, what am I going to do? And then that's when the book came out. Man, yeah, yeah we definitely gonna have to talk about making sure we get your book promoted to our audience because I think I, I don't know if enough people know about the brilliance of what you've created. So I want to make sure yeah, um, yeah. we can elevate that for sure. And you know what's funny? So I just, just met Keenan. I just met Keenan a couple of weeks ago at the Cambiar Catalyst <laughs> Fellowship convening, right? I figured, yeah. And so as soon as I saw him, I was like, oh, this brother is the truth. And then yeah. he spit some bars. I was like, oh, okay. He has it. He like, has he has two albums. You can go find him. Yeah, see, I didn't even know that. Yeah. yeah. That brother is the truth. Um, his latest album um that he has, look at that. I, I no affiliate fee and nothing. It's called Seriously is his latest okay, album. Cool. Um, he's got uh, someone that produces beats with him. His name is Jonesy. And so it's tight. Hmm. And I'm a critic okay, and cool. a half, I got to check him as out. As you know, just like okay, cool. my million <laughs> misses that you've done work with, you oh, know, yeah. who, and oh, yeah. Shanita and Keenan have done a ton of stuff together through Rethink. So now yeah, this world is ridiculously, ridiculously small. It's It really, really is, especially like the I don't know if it's a proper word, but this is the word that most people are familiar with, especially the air reform space or whatever yeah. you want to call that TFA ish kind of space. Mm-hmm. It is uh, it's super duper small, you know? Yeah. So what's next for you, Ian? What are you building towards now that it sounds like you may have started focusing on the kind of work you enjoy doing that you're great at? Then the way I like to go pay bills right in the way that you want. Yeah. What's what's next for you? What kind of impact are you looking at? Yeah, man. I heard the babies. Yeah, the babies are always around these podcasts. They're always a part of these episodes. So, yeah, she woke up from her nap. So, <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah. You know, so I so I had a chance to hang out with Dame Dash a while ago and uh, maybe okay. like a month ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so his uh the big question that he asked is, what's your dream? Mm. And he really wanted us to think big. And so my dream, honestly, man, my dream is to be like the Jay-Z of coaching. 
That's really my dream. So that's part of what I really want to do. I really want to be this Jay-Z of executive coaching. And I want to have the impact that really does change the world. So one is this one-on-one engagement with powerful leaders. But the other piece is to really kick off this masterclass in a way that it takes hold all across the country and taps a lot of leaders. So really, those are really the two big pieces. One is to just have as many folks that I can coach as possible because I understand the power of coaching, especially the social, emotional, the adaptive leadership piece. I'm not a goal coach. I'm a soul coach. And I like to tell people that. Um, So I like that adaptive piece. But then again, the other part is to really develop the masterclass so it has a broader reach. You have me really intrigued by this idea of being the Jay-Z of executive coaching, a soul coach. To describe what that would be, if you get to that, what's happening? What's happening is people are touched in profound ways based on the interactions that we have. And they are inspired and they can take pieces of it with them forever. And they can use certain bars that we've had in our conversations to really inspire. The other piece is I want to just walk into a space any kind of way that I want to. You know, at the point Jay-Z is now, he can wear a suit if he wants to, but he could also wear some J's and a T-shirt. That's right. In a space with billionaires. And so I want to be able to move to this. And now he has the uh, the Basquiat locks, you know. And so now, you know, he's just, uh, he's very independent. And he has evolved into a more conscious person, similar to this doggone new Jeezy album. And so that's what I'm into now, just really paying attention to his evolution as a human being and a grown man. And so I think that's really, I want to really evolve as an executive leadership coach. I'm good now. I'm pretty good now, but I want to be at the top. And there are a couple of people that I'm shooting at who I feel like are at the top of their game that I really want to be able to say, yeah, I'm just like him or I'm better than him or her. So I'm asking a different derivative of the top five rappers of all time. Who are like your top five executive coaches right there in the space right now that you're like, I'm trying to be on that list and, and be number one. Yeah. So so I don't know if I have five, but I do know that there's a brother by the name of Don Angelo. I don't know. I can't remember Don Angelo's name. So I'm trained in the uh, coactive training model or the CTI model. That's one of the, the methodologies. I also do the immunity to change that comes out of Harvard University. I'm also a facilitator of that methodology. But Don Angelo is is probably at the top. And then Elena Aguilar. Amen. She's yep. a boss. Yeah, she's a boss. Mm-hmm. She's a boss. And her impact is broad. And so uh, to have a system, a structure like hers with books and handouts and weekly emails. uh... Yeah, there's someone I have to bring to this space. She was one of my earlier podcast guests and has been my executive coach for the last two years. The brilliant Elsa Marquez, who's been executive coaching for the last 30 years, at least had a very, very big job and HR and talent and. Her love was coaching. She made that pivot some time yeah. back and isn't, hasn't looked back at all. Still touches it here and there, right? Does some HR trainings, talent stuff, but mm-hmm. she is a master executive coach and so much of what she's taught me, which is interesting because my own coaching journey has been one of what framework am I trained under and what like tools yep. and things that I use. And I have some, right? I talk about adaptive leadership. I talk mm-hmm. a little bit about, you know, other culturally responsive, you know, coaching tools that I've used. But I think more than anything, when I talk and describe my coaching, which comes from Mm -hmm. my own being coached by Elsa, is 
that context is everything. That you can't coach without context. Well, how do you get context? Curiosity, listening, that that cultural mm-hmm. relevance, right? Being able to like have someone identify enough with you to be able to share and be vulnerable. And to be clear, like everyone has a different style. Like you're not like you're I'm not a coach for everybody, you're not a coach for everybody. Mm-hmm. To be clear, exactly. right? And right. at the same time, if you build really good spaces for people, I'd like to believe at some universal level, you can coach anybody, right? That you can build mm-hmm. and learn the context to be able to help somebody with something, right? Going Absolutely. on, especially in their leadership, right? Absolutely. And I do, and I, and I tell all of my coaching partners that, you know, I, I describe it as a sacred space. And I really mm-hmm. do mean that. It is really a sacred space because it is one of the few opportunities that selfless educators and leaders get a chance to solely focus on themselves, you know, in a space that allows them to be vulnerable. I work with a lot of black and brown men. And typically, as Paul Lawrence Dunbar says, we wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our face and shields our eyes. Jay-Z says, I can't let them see them coming down my eyes, so I got to make the song cry. And so we try to find all of these Stop. things. Stop. Yeah. And so and so we try to really put these, ma- you know, you know what we do. Yeah. And so yeah. and so I try to help our leaders help us move beyond that because it is so unhealthy. It doesn't allow you to be your full self. And uh, that is really my one of my primary goals is to really help us be authentic and and not to be a human doing, but to be a human being. Yeah. Because so much time we focus on the doing part of our humanity, we don't focus on the being part of our humanity. Yeah. You've hit something that I, I know I've been talking about with other brothers who I've had on this podcast. Keenan, Mark Etienne at Rethink, my, my BFF in the world that I went to NYU with that is the godfather to my daughter, Sophia, Kristen Mamora amongst many okay. other men that I've had on this, this idea of like, what do we do to be supporting us because of what you just said? We have been socialized, and speaking yep. specifically men of color, mm-hmm. to be a certain way around provide, do, versus feel. Like mm-hmm. I feel the feeling part of our beings has been shut down. So I'm curious how you've helped your male leaders of color, like rebuild that sense of feeling. Cause without that, I get scared that the outlets that we have as men of color turn into some very toxic things that then have us become the zombies and the toxicity that our society does not need. Yeah, man. Such a, such a brilliant question. Yeah. Um, so, so, so in my coaching framework, which is called the two that I use primarily, but the CTI framework really is about tapping into the emotional, tapping into the heart, tapping into the soul, tapping into the spirit, using those kinds of activities, whether they're somatic uh, activities or those kinds of things. So we can move less from the cerebral to the heart and the soul. And so in my spaces, especially initially, Black and brown men feel so uncomfortable showing up in those kinds of ways. Yep. And so I have to, so you have to build that community and build that trust and build this sacred space or courageous space, whatever you want to call it, to give folks the opportunity to do that. But once they feel the breakthroughs, it's kind of like me 
when I had that first really good golf swing and it was like, shoot, I was like, okay, I'm hooked now. And so I think it's the same thing when it comes to coaching. Once you can get leaders to trust the process and to understand how the body talks and to understand how tapping into the being can cause transformation, then, you know, folks are typically hooked. That really resonates with me because I think so many of us dissociate from the way that our body holds these emotions, right? Because it goes somewhere, right? Absolutely right. And so that then turns into tension, stress, other outlets, right? And so, you know, for me, there's a level of like being able to tie what your body feels to your brain's feelings and sense of emotion, right? And so if you can't tie those things together and start to create language, understanding, right? Mm -hmm. Baseline, and then turn that into, well, how do you start reacting differently? If a situation happens in leadership, someone pushes backs against you, someone says something, or there's a stressful moment, like, what do you do in those? Like, because I think without that, right, it's just like, you know, it's like Elsa from Frozen, you know? (laughs) You know, facts, man. You know, keep, keep, keep it hidden, you know, concealed, don't heal, don't let it show, right? Which is so destructive for our beings. So the last thing you said again, you know, of course, so man, so I'm from St. Louis, just as a sidebar. So I flew by myself all the way to Denver, Colorado to go to the Jay-Z 444 concert solo. Like solo. Are you a fan? How many times have you seen Jay in concert? That's that's serious. But I've only seen him once. But I've only seen him once. Okay. But but I'm getting to this part that he talks about mm. is, you know, when he says, you can't heal what you can't reveal. And that's just what you said. Yeah. And so that's why coaching is so important for us because it is a, it can, it can be a healing space. And, and one of the things that I do with my coaching clients is I have them take, it comes out of positive intelligence. I think the saboteur assessment. And so it highlights, you, you already yes. know. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. And so that is such a good start to coaching. No, no, no. It's not the, that's the second space. The first thing I do is help people understand and define the king within and also understand their strengths and their superpowers. So I focus on that stuff first that builds the resonance. Then I also help them see the things that build dissonance. And that typically is around one of the nine saboteurs. We're actually there are 10. The judge is the number one saboteur. Yeah. But then there are nine more saboteurs that you look know. at that. The blessing, so when I left my last company in early August, that the entrepreneurship journey, I found through the new leaders community, and I have to shout Mm -hmm. out Kathy Black here because she posted on Facebook and said, hey, I've been doing the positive intelligence coaching cohort. Anyone want to join me in this journey? That's literally how I found out about it. I had no idea about it, but, you know, having studied Goldman, Being Mm -hmm. someone who loves to reflect, I've been meditating seven years straight for the most part, every morning Mm -hmm. for 20 minutes. Mm. That positive intelligence framework just hooked because it connected to that mind-body-spirit connection. So I literally do this. When I feel stressed or I'm feeling anxiety or the judge or any of the saboteurs come on, you'll get this. Oh, absolutely. The thing, without fail, me doing a power lift, me getting like, kind of emotional during a conversation, something. I just literally start, my wife was like, why are you you rubbing your fingers? I'm like, it calms me down. (laughs) Absolutely right. Yep, yep, absolutely right. And when you do enough of those reps, now I'm just like, oh, wow, this is really. (laughs) I'm good, yeah. Right? Absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I provide a menu of coaching clients, a menu of 
things that they can personalize yes. to address and confront the saboteur when it comes up. So you are spot on. It's so interesting because I right before we got on this this uh this podcast, I sent an email to a client and just said, hey, I want you to track your saboteurs over the next two weeks. I have the saboteur tracker and just see what pops up and notice your body's reaction. That's it. Build awareness. And it, it, yeah. insp- it, and it's, it inspires breakthroughs, man. It really does. And I also teach, like you said, the tools to know. So for me, I have this tattoo that says mm-hmm. God is omniscient and omnipotent. And so there will be times when you just see me hit my arm and people are like, what is he doing? <laughs> Only if you knew. <laughs> yep. Ian. Well, we're starting around that at that time of the podcast, Ian, that I feel it's apropos to ask you the title of the podcast, man. What is your rondering? What is the lesson or value you want to share with the audience? Huh. So this is so interesting. Like I have a gang of them, but I think one is so, so I have these like what ifs. And my what if right now is what if. We had sugar-free K-12 schools. How different might the process of education be? And let me tell you why I say that. Okay. Because if we really dive into this health thing, we know that sugar is indeed a poison. And we know that many times in schools we pump, especially in the black, brown, low-income schools, we pump sugar into our schools. And it does so much damage to the brain, so much damage to the attention span, so much damage to the ability to achieve that I really wonder how different education would be if we had either sugar free or less of a sugar infused environment. So that's really that's Mm. really one that I've been really, especially because I'm on this super health kick right now. And I haven't done sugar for about a week. So, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. That's one. You know, there's something about what you said about the idea of a sugar-free K-12 ed school system that for me relates to then what's happening in food justice, right? And there are many folks that are working on that. And when you look at, unfortunately, I went through the undoing racism workshop some years back with Mm. PSAP. And Mm -hmm. you start to then map the kinds of things that are in any hood in the United States. What do you often see? There's not a lot of place to get fresh produce, a lot of processed food, right? A lot of sugar. Like, look, any, like, and it's really about the process, like sugar in of itself, if it's raw, like in moderation, it's good for you. Like eat fruit, sugar and fruit. Exactly right. right? Exactly right. Processed stuff, you know, and then you start to tie it together. I don't know how much, you know, you know, I think for you and I, being folks who want to be healthy at our age, right, is you understand that what you put in your body and where do you get access to the good things to put in your body? They're building a Whole Foods around my way that's that's opening up next Thursday. And you know what I'm saying? Like getting fresh produce and God bless the income level that my missus and I have, there's always mm-hmm. fresh produce in our house, right? Exactly and, right. And, and yep. fresh yep. meat and things like that, right? You yep. know, we really try yep. to squash down what's processed, even though yeah, on occasion we get McDonald's, yeah. we get, you know, it's yeah. like in, in moderation, right? But you understand that then- the other thing I might say, like, how do you start to dismantle this idea of sugar-free K-12 schools is, one, the kinds of things that exist in these communities, the access, right, to healthy, two, the education to say, it's not bad to make food the way that we've grown up, but like, what can we do to introduce maybe other ingredients to make those yes, same absolutely things right. and still taste as good, right? That That's number absolutely two. Right. 
And then yep. number three, for me, the disruption is it's who's providing, you know, our school lunches. You know this having been a systems leader, Matt. There is a Absolutely. racket in America on who oh provides school Bro, food. That food is like you want to talk about they they're the same folks who provide, you know, lunches and dinners and food for prisons. Let's be clear. Amen. Right? You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like you yes. look at this track, like, oh, where is like, oh, yeah. Wait. Really? Exactly. And then you look at schools that have higher income levels, Mm -hmm. they're not pumping. I know. It's just, it's so. They are not. And it's the same with like being on the fitness journeys, like saying, if I'm going to get healthy and like train for whatever it is I'm training for, a 5K, I don't know, boxing, losing weight, right? What you're putting in your body, the access that you have, and then the level of like coaching and support you have, it's a game changer. It just is. It really is, man. It really is. And so that's why I really am an advocate. And, and, you know, sugar is one thing, but it really is about fresh fruits and vegetables. It is about minimizing salt. It is about yeah. decreasing sugar. Mm-hmm. It really is about all of those things. Yeah, man. And especially because many of our communities, like I just lost a sister last week to mm. she had high blood pressure issues and she literally died with the high blood pressure on her arm. But it was because of part of it is the hyper, the stress of being an educator. But then the other part is really bad diet. And so we really have to confront this thing because it it is such an issue in our communities. And so I think that's one thing. The other thing, honestly, is and I don't know even if this is aligned to your question, but I really wonder what it would be like if at every at least at every grade level span, all of our kids had had one travel abroad experience. So how cool would it be at every grade level span? So whether we're talking about K-5 or K-6, and we're talking about elementary, middle, high, of course, secondary, uh, post-secondary. But what if all of our kids had a world-class, out-of-the-country experience directly tied to curriculum? How powerful would that be for our kids? You know, Because many of our kids don't get vacations mm-hmm. and those kinds of things that they do. It might be Disney at the most. And yeah. so how do we expand this and open kids' uh, backgrounds of experiences? Because one of the things that we know, one of the keys to literacy is vocabulary uh, acquisition, especially yeah. at the pre-K three levels. And so how do we give them this broad range of experiences so it does build their funds of knowledge and their backgrounds so they can become more literate and they can see the world and have more global dexterity, you know? Man, that's another podcast episode. Be talking about that. I know. But Ian, before we end off, I wanted to give you space to promote what's going on in your life and your career. So, yep, I appreciate it, Ron. Yeah. And and thank you for this opportunity, man. I Absolutely. really appreciate it. You are you are a G in this work, man. You're a G. Uh, and so for me, again, I have the book uh, King, a four part leadership framework for Black men, and I wrote it when I wrote it. I was in my mind, I have four black men who I was actually writing it for, but it has transferability across race, gender, those age, those kinds of things, profession. And so the book is available on Amazon. Uh, if you want an autographed copy, then you can just reach out to me and I can take care of you. But but that Beautiful. part. And then I also have the leadership masterclass that is available. And so that is a way to be in community and actually take some time to personalize the strategies that I advocate and make this King framework your own. Those are the really the two things that are, are really the mm-hmm. couple big things I'm working on. In addition to 
just really trying to uh, find an opportunity to, to, to be an executive coach to more leaders. Ian, man, we're going to need another podcast episode to just dive deeper into, into King and into your leadership work in more depth. But yeah, man. Ian, brother, it was a real pleasure having you on this podcast. So much incredible work that you're doing and more than anything to have you talk about your love of hip hop and how that has pervaded your work. There's nothing for me like more beautiful than to see how we all create and are artists, no matter yeah. what endeavor that we're involved in. So absolutely right, man. Just just as a quick quick note, man. So my even my dissertation was around the intersectionality of hip hop culture, black masculinity, and the schooling experiences of boys of color. So hip hop is in my academic DNA and everything. So yep. Beautiful. Well, Ian, thank you for being on the Ronderings podcast. Ronderings universe, we continue to spit hot fire. Dylan, 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 Dylan is my Man. top five rappers of all time. Just so y'all know. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> but Ian, brother, appreciate you. Ronderings universe, we coming. Peace. Peace. You can't heal what you never reveal. Thank you, Dr. Ian, Dr. Ian Buchanan, for dropping that Jay-Z wisdom nugget with our audience today. And I appreciate how he especially talked about what your rondering was today, that what if we had sugar-free K-12 schools? So much to unpack there in terms of the way that systems of power, systems of food deserts and systems of just not being able to have the best environments for learning for our kids all intersect, all intersect. So once again, thank you, Dr. Ian, for your wisdom. We keep coming with the fire, folks. Check us out, Ronderings Podcast. More amazing guests coming. Peace.